listening to The Vault Podcast, bringing you diverse perspectives about 4IR innovations and the law, and providing a space for challenging the future of legal tech. These are the voices of law and technology. This is Vault. Welcome to The Vault Podcast. I am Nurushka Bowen and will be one of your hosts. On today's episode, we will be talking about decentralized finance, what it is, how it works, and its potential future in the financial ecosystem. This was recorded as a live clubhouse session, moderated by myself and joining Dean Joffe and Ashlyn Peromal. Without further ado, on to the conversation. Hi everybody and welcome to the Vault Law Tech Room on Clubhouse. Today we're discussing demystifying DeFi. For the listeners, I'd just like everybody to know that this is being recorded for the Vault podcast. So the topic today is called demystifying DeFi. Uh, Your speakers tonight are techies with a legal background uh, who've worked in tech law, privacy law, and fintech law. And we'll be breaking down some of the technical terms for a non-technical audience, as well as discussing some of the legal and regulatory implications of this mystical world of DeFi. So let's start at the beginning and understand what the terminology means, uh, what does DeFi mean, and um, you know what does the term DeFi actually stand for? So Ashlyn, if you could give us a simple explanation to kick off. Thanks so much, Narushka. Um, it feels like just when we, um, the average consumer, managed to start getting to grips with concepts such as distributed ledgers and blockchain, um, the industry decided to throw us another humdinger. And even those experienced in the field might be finding themselves a little bit out of depth when, when looking at DeFi because it's, it's a new phenomenon. It's something that is still in its infancy days and, and something that we need to understand. So um, hopefully we can give you a, a basic description um, and, and compare it to some things that, that are useful as metaphors to, to understand the area. Um, the best way that I always find to think about DeFi is to firstly look at the the one of the features of the cryptocurrency and DLT uh, arena, and that is decentralization. Um, currently, a major feature of um, cryptocurrencies and tokenized assets is the the ability to have a decentralized platform um, be the backbone of how they they operate. Um, but currently, most of these decentralized platforms focus on a means of conducting payments or simple transactions. So if you look at Bitcoin, for example, the main purpose of Bitcoin is to either be a, a form of payment or a store of value. Um, and this is true for, for quite a number of other uh, uh, cryptocurrencies. But the, the question is, um, when it comes to money, um, the only use we have for money is not just payments. Um, money also is used for financial services. There's a whole ecosystem of financial services built around money. Um, For example, there's lending or borrowing. If you want to buy a house, um, you would have, um, you'd go to your bank for a mortgage, fill out a couple of forms, show that you have a good credit rating and get a mortgage. Um, For example, if you wanted to do savings or have some sort of interest accrual, you might take out a fixed deposit. Um, And if you've bought a house or bought a car, you might want to take out insurance on that that particular asset. So there's there's a whole bouquet of financial services that exist around money in addition to its function as a means of payment. So the purpose of DeFi, um, and and to break out the acronym, DeFi stands for Decentralized Finance, 
um, is to bring the decentralized benefits of um, distributed ledger technology such as blockchain to financial services. And there's a couple of benefits that you get from doing that. Um, one is um, obviously the removal of some sort of centralized authority um, that is that is creating the platform for financial services. So that reduces the risk of, for example, corruption and fraud. Um, it also reduces intrusion. So for platforms which want to have a lot of freedom in respect of how they conduct their financial services, it removes that centralized platform or arbiter, um, which, which also enables open accessibility to those who would not typically have been able to enter these financial ecosystems. In addition to that, centralized governance also depends on the people enacting it. Um, and one of the main features of decentralized finance, as we'll see, is that it's not based on people, but rather on code um, and specific protocols designed into the code. Um, and then there's also a reduced risk of manipulation. So those are those are the benefits that you would have over above centralized finance uh, with DeFi. The main difference I would look at to compare this to current centralized finance that we're used to is that with centralized finance, you're trusting the company or the people sitting behind um that particular financial service, whereas with decentralized finance, you're not trusting people, you're trusting protocols and codes and that they will work in, in, a, in a particular way. Now, that's, that's a little bit of a description of you know, how DeFi fits into our world. I thought I'd just quickly spend some time on the structure of DeFi and how that actually can be defined in a way that, that makes sense. One of the main requirements for decentralized architecture is some sort of infrastructure, right? Um, some sort of system, programmability, platform, or, or something in which you can actually embed these, these protocols. What you will see in the industry is the Ethereum protocol has been one that has been most popular for this because of its robust ability to create decentralized applications or, or dApps. And that's tick number one. You need for DeFi to have some kind of uh, decentralized uh, platform that allows you to create these products in the form of, of um, programmable smart contracts. The second thing that you need um, for, for DeFi is some sort of stable base of, of value. Now, for those of us who are familiar with the cryptocurrency world, um, one of the unfortunate um, features and, and perhaps one of the reasons why the utility of cryptocurrency uh, has struggled a bit is the volatility. It is very hard to build financial services when the bedrock is, is extremely volatile. So you will see with a lot of DeFi um, systems um, that, and for example, make a the DAO, which we'll talk about in a second, which is a popular DeFi platform, they look at creating stable coins as their base, um, and that allows for stability in respect of the fluctuations of the value of the underlying uh, decentralized finance system, and that allows you to build interesting things on top of it because of that, that stability. Now, once you've got that, um, you can then start building different types of decentralized financial services. And these aren't uniform. There's a variety of them, and we'll talk more about them as we go on the conversation. Examples are decentralized exchanges, systems for um, lending and, and making money and interest off of your um, cryptocurrencies, and then the ability to build and chunk these together in a way that's useful to you. So one of the really, really cool features of all of these decentralized DeFi services is that most of them are being built with some degree of interoperability. And that means you can basically package your service or DeFi financial service in the way you want to do it. A term that's been used to describe this is DeFi Lego. And these DeFi services can be chunked together to achieve what you, the user, want to as, as your own particular goal, kind of like software libraries. An example of that could be you could chunk together different DeFi um, services to borrow money 
Uh, for example, if you've got Ethereum, you can use that to borrow DAI on the MakerDAO um, system. You can then use a different financial service, DeFi financial service, to then use that DAI to um, lend that out. And then you can use another service to to insure against the risk that's associated with that lending. So there's a there's the ability of of really build your own product in the DeFi world, which is which is really really exciting. Great, thanks so much for that explanation. And just to to understand again, at the beginning you said money is not just for payments. There's an entire ecosystem of financial services built around money. Is it correct to say cryptocurrency is not just for payments? DeFi opens up an entire ecosystem of financial services built around cryptocurrencies. Would you say that's a, a, a good analogy? I, I would think so. I think what, what DeFi does is it, it takes cryptocurrencies and, and allows them to be used in the way that we are used to using money. Um, so I definitely think that's an accurate statement. The, the catch to that statement is that that's the theoretical goal. Uh, whether we're, we've achieved that yet or not in current DeFi platforms is is a big question mark. Great, thanks for that. Dean, if you could perhaps, um, you know, give us your explanation of DeFi and, you know, anything to add to, to Ashton's um, explanation. And then if you could also tell us, you know, where did DeFi actually start? And, you know, give us a little bit of context and background as to, to um, you know, the, the beginning and, and where we are now. Absolutely. And I think Ashlyn has really summed up nicely what is DeFi. And to give my, my different perspective, although similar, is that, you know, as mentioned, DeFi is short for decentralized finance. And it's the notion of recreating traditional finance in a decentralized architecture, uh, outside of companies and government's control. So in essence, what we're doing is it's a form of finance that doesn't rely on the central financial intermediaries, such as brokers, exchange, or banks to offer traditional financial instruments. And it instead utilizes smart contracts on blockchain, uh, and the most common of this being Ethereum. Now, what DeFi platforms allow people to do is, for example, lend or borrow funds from others, speculate on price movements on a range of assets using derivatives, they can trade cryptocurrencies, they can insure against risk, and they can earn interest in like savings like accounts. Now, if we take it back in, in time, you know, uh, it is arguable that DeFi started with uh, DAI, which is the one-to-one -one backed with the US dollar cryptocurrency. And it's considered the first example of decentralized finance to receive significant adoption. Now, DAI is created to form like an over-collateralized loan and the re repayment processes are facilitated by the MakerDAO smart contracts in the form of a decentralized application. So users who deposit Ethereum or other cryptocurrencies accept this as collateral and they're able to borrow against the value of their deposits and receive newly generated DAI. So if the value of the collateral declines below the ratio, and the loan can automatically be liquidated by smart contracts. And conversely, on the other hand, if its value increases, additional DAO can be borrowed. So when we look at DeFi and the context behind it, in essence, all it is, it's trying to recreate the financial system in a decentralized manner. Thanks, Dean. Now, you, you talked a lot about decentralization um, you know, not having these intermediaries to, to kind of regulate what's going on. Everything is based on the code, you know, whether you need to go up or down. 
Um, now, what I want to understand is in the event of a dispute, um, what happens then? You know, is the code so bulletproof that uh, there will never be a mistake? I mean, after all, there are humans that are that are actually hu- using these 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 products, and we know uh, humans do make mistakes. So, so how does um, DeFi deal with uh, deal with things when things go wrong? Um, so I think that one way to think about that is um, there's probably a couple of areas which you need to consider in respect of the human potential for creating risk in, in DeFi. Um, the first one, which is the most immediate one, and the one that probably needs to get fixed the soonest, and that is the risk of um, incorrect or um, problematic programming in the smart contracts. And that's because of the the risk of major transactions happening and a single glitch in the system causing uh, unintentional or even intentional harm in, the re- in, in respect of malicious actors. So at the first layer, better systems for controlling smart contract code is something that, that is still being investigated and there's still risks existing in current platforms which, which need to be overcome. In addition to that, um, there are the governance uh, risks associated with many of these platforms, and that is because because of their very nature that they're decentralized, they are regulated and governed by governance of the, the users. And in this case, um, MakerDAO, as an example, has specific tokens which are used for governance. Um, they're called the MKR tokens. And holders of the MKR tokens can do a variety of things to the actual underlying protocol um, that's associated with that particular DeFi platform. For example, a governance uh, token holder can uh, add new collateral asset types um, in accordance with unique risk parameters. Uh, They could modify the DAI um, savings rate. They could choose specific Oracle feeds. uh, And they could trigger emergency shutdowns, for example, or even upgrade the system. Now, that's another entry point for people to start influencing um, the protocols behind the system. So um, to some extent, a lot of platforms are making a lot of effort to ensure that these you know, human actors behave in a way that is very restricted. Um, but there is going to be a need for better standardization and education of consumers so that they can understand what these risks are and how they affect uh, these platforms. Thanks, Dean. Anything to add to that? I don't think anything to add. What I, what I would definitely emphasize is that, you know, if we, we look at a, a practical example, you know, DAO is maintained and regulated by the maker DAO. So that's a decentralized autonomous organization, which is composed of the owners of its governance token, as Ashlyn mentioned, the MKR. And these people who hold the tokens vote on the changes and set certain uh, parameters in the smart contracts in order to ensure the stability. So this is quite a fundamental element of of this, and it's it's something that you know organisations are continuing and continue try to trying to evolve in order to have the best governance framework. How would I become an, a holder of one of these governance tokens? Is there some kind of um, vetting process for a governance holder, or is it whoever has enough money to purchase one? You know, what is what does that process look like? So I think just to just to touch on on your point, in essence, you can go and buy various DeFi tokens, which are available on on different exchanges. And once you hold these different tokens, you may have certain rights uh, as a result of holding these tokens. Cool. Thanks for for clarifying that. So I mean, we've we've spoken a little bit about the background of of DeFi. Um, you know, the, the kind of meaning of the word. But if we could get a little bit more technical for, for a minute, you know, 
under under the hood, how does DeFi actually work? How would I participate in the ecosystem? Could you give us a little bit more detail on that side? Absolutely. So, so in essence, DeFi revolves around the applications known as decentralized applications or DApps that perform uh, financial functions on digital ledgers called blockchain. And that's a technology which was ultimately first utilized by Bitcoin and has since been used in a much broader context. So rather than transactions being made with and through a centralized intermediary, such as a cryptocurrency exchange where they are centralized, Transactions are directly made between the participants, and these are governed by the various smart contracts. So decentralized applications are typically accessed through enabled web browser extensions or applications, uh, and these allow the users to directly interact with the Ethereum blockchain through specific sites. And many of these decentralized applications can connect and work together to create complex financial uh, services. So for example, Stablecoin holders can, com- uh, can commit assets to a liquidity pool. Others can borrow from this pool by contributing additional collateral. And typically this is more than the amount of the loan. And what the protocol automatically does is it adjusts the interest rates based on the, the moment to moment demand for the asset. Now, if we take it into a more practical example, a common DeFi protocol is something known as Uniswap which is a decentralized exchange that runs on the Ethereum blockchain and allows for the trading of hundreds of different digital tokens that are issued on the Ethereum blockchain. So rather than relying on a centralized market maker to fill order, Uniswap's algorithm incentivizes users to form liquidity pools for the tokens by issuing trading fees to those providing liquidity. So a development team will write the software for deployment on uh, Uniswap And in essence, what will happen is the platform will ultimately be governed by its users. So because there's no central party that runs Uniswap, there's no need to check the identities of these people using the platform. And therefore, it is not clear what position, uh, you know, ultimately regulators would take in the future. But that is how the DeFi is actually working on in the background. Just to you know, elaborate on on the point that you made with regards to, it's not clear the position regulators would take. Uh, In South Africa, for example, we have the Intergovernmental FinTech Working Group, which is, you know, the group of um, FinTech regulators or financial services regulators who have come together to look at innovations in FinTech uh, and specifically cryptocurrency or crypto assets. You know, they have published policy papers on this point. Um, and and, and if, you, if you read those policy papers, it is quite clear that they're seeking to regulate the, the on-ramps and off-ramps into and out of crypto, the intermediaries, um, the exchanges, the wallet providers, uh, those, the payment providers, those type of players in the, in the ecosystem. Now, it seems like from what I'm hearing, DeFi is definitely throwing a spanner in the works based on the policy considerations that have already been uh, taken. Um, you know, there, there's a definition of something called a crypto asset service provider. And it's really this category of people that, that, are, that will uh, carry bulk of these, these regulations by, by the regulators. Now, you know, from, from what you've seen, is it possible to even attempt to regulate uh, these type of DeFi setups? And if yes, you know, is the current policy decisions the way, way regulations are going, is that the correct way? 
um, or, or do you think you know policy needs to already be um, uh, adjusted to 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 make room for for DeFi? So, so I think let's break it up into to two points and and take it back a step to to give a bit more context. So the first is in respect of the proposed regulations by the Intergovernmental FinTech Working Group. And the second is how do we regulate? So to give everyone a bit of background, the the Intergovernmental FinTech Working Group was set up, uh, I think in 2016 or 17, with a aim of looking at various cryptocurrencies, which is what it was called at the time, and methods on how to regulate cryptocurrencies. And one of the key mandates was, how does South Africa adopt regulations that do not stifle innovation? So that's what we saw a couple of years ago. And it became very prevalent after what was considered the 2017 bubble, uh, where a lot of uh, consumers lost some funds, and there became this need to regulate cryptocurrencies. What resulted in 2020 was the Intergovernmental FinTech Working Group proposing, I think it was 10 recommendations. And as part of these recommendations, they proposed regulating crypto asset service providers. Now, what that means is that crypto asset service providers would have to register with a regulatory body and they would have to conduct certain activities such as AML KYC requirements, which would require them to onboard their clients through what is considered the FICA process and ultimately know the identity of the underlying clients. Now, what becomes really interesting is we have a, a governmental fintech working group that is looking at, at how to regulate cryptocurrencies, which has now become terminology defined as crypto assets uh, in South Africa. But as they are trying to regulate the crypto asset, there's a lot more movement that is occurring within the industry. So we actually in a phase of, you know, we, we need to regulate crypto asset service providers. But as we want to regulate those crypto asset service providers, there's new and more innovative technology, which almost takes it a step further, preventing these regulatory bodies from effectively regulating uh, the decentralized platforms that are operating in certain industries. Now, to put it into perspective, uh, in, in September 2019, DeFi only had about $500 million committed to it. And of, as of April 2021, there's $50 billion. So in 2017, when the Intergovernmental FinTech Working Group was set up, DeFi platforms weren't necessarily on the radar. And as time has evolved, and as decentralization has continued to develop, and protocols have continued to develop, We've now left in a phase where regulators are probably once again looking at how do we effectively regulate these different protocols, one, for example, being Uniswap. And in fact, the key question is, can we regulate? So it's a very good question you ask. I think in respect of the traditional crypto asset service providers who are providing on-ramps and off-ramps, that is something that is possible to regulate. But insofar as decentralized platforms are concerned, this becomes a lot harder to regulate, specifically where there is no specific jurisdiction where they sit. Ashlyn, would you like to add anything to, to that as well? Because it's quite a complex um, area. 
Absolutely. And and I think that to touch on what Dean's just laid out, um, the approach is not unique to South Africa. Um, if you look at the FATF, um, they've also taken the approach of regulating the or, or prescribing regulations for virtual asset service providers, so the, the VASPs, which essentially are the touch points and on-ramps and off-ramps in respect to the system. And the reason for that is that's where um, your real-world kind of risk bleeds itself into these these ecosystems. Now, that's quite important in the context of DeFi. And the reason why is um, many DeFi systems seek their stability through algorithmic pegging to real-world currencies. So in other words, these platforms are not really holding actual currency. Rather, they're algorithmically using that as a mechanism of stabilizing that value. And that means that there are less on-ramps and off-ramps with real-world actors. And that creates a massive risk in respect of uh, well, who do you regulate in the space? Who, what is actually the the touch points? Now, why this is important and, and quite an important issue in DeFi and probably its defining issue to overcome is that the liquidity pools that are used to essentially enable DeFi platforms are perfect for money laundering. And that's obviously going to catch the the awareness of, of many regulators, not just in South Africa, but, but, but around the world. Um, so I would not be surprised if regulators start looking at ways and means to, to regulate this. Now, the problem is um, it is difficult to apply current regulation. As Dean said, um, for, for example, it's very difficult to look at your securities regulators and try and find touch points for them to regulate. So the risk to consumers who enter the space and don't understand that it's new, novel, and still being understood is that there's possibly no regulator to look to when when something goes wrong. And that's that's something that DeFi will need to overcome to to scale properly. Thanks so much for that. I mean, given what both of you have said, I think it would be very difficult to be a regulator in financial services trying to figure out all of this right now and also trying to keep up. Um, You know, I think Dean mentioned as policy decisions were made on, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies as they were, we already have moved along um, into, into the new world of NFTs and DeFi, which don't fit as snugly into these definitions that were created um, for for cryptocurrencies, it's it really is uh, fascinating and as well as um, mystical. <laughs> so perhaps that's one thing we can't demystify well, well, uh, today. P- perhaps you know yes. to use one of the mystical new um, use cases for DeFi, which I find absolutely fascinating. Um, one novel new ca- uh, use case is called a flash loan. Um, now, mm-hmm. a flash loan is essentially a smart algorithmic loan. So it's a it's a smart contract loan um, that is not collateralized and where payment is virtually immediate. So if a borrower gets approved for the loan in the real world, typically you'd have to pay back your loan steadily over a period of you know months or years. A flash loan, however, is is immediate. In other words, um, you you get paid back immediately, um, and that means that the the borrower, essentially using smart contracts, can use funds immediately without that intermediate risk. Um, there is no real world equivalent for this. This doesn't exist in real world finance, and has been exploited. So it's it's currently got a negative connotation with it. Uh, for arbitrage. Uh, for example, if you notice between two different exchanges that a specific cryptocurrency is worth $100 on one exchange and $200 on another exchange, um, you could 
use one of these flash loans to essentially buy the the cryptocurrency on one exchange and exchange with other immediately and and thereby take the difference the the, the $100 difference between the two as as your benefit without any co- collateral and that's that's an example of where defi can actually be exploited or potentially if this is done properly used in a way to create things that don't even exist in the real world and for which we have no context for regulation sure and i mean things like loans in the traditional sense you know do come with with heavy regulation and licenses and things like that and 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 these i guess are performing very similar services but but largely um unregulated given given the way um they are set up it is really fascinating uh stuff dean i mean we we've spoken about one application now of defi but could you perhaps share some other examples of defi applications that you've come across Absolutely. So so to touch on what we've already discussed, we've already mentioned decentralized exchanges which help users exchange uh, cryptocurrencies for other currencies and this could either be US dollars for Bitcoin or for Ethereum or Ethereum to Bitcoin and all the different trading pairs and decentralized exchanges are currently becoming a lot more hyped up than centralized exchanges. due to the fact that it connects users directly so they can trade cryptocurrencies with one another without trusting an intermediary with their money so that's the first popular use case another is stable coins which Ashlyn had mentioned and this is in essence a cryptocurrency that is tied to an asset outside of the cryptocurrency uh, market and this is to stabilize price and a key example is true usd or tether where there is a pretty much one to one backed cryptocurrency the other example is lending platforms which are platforms that use smart contracts to replace intermediaries such as bank that manage the lending uh, in the middle um another example is what is considered wrapped bitcoins which is a way of sending bitcoin to the ethereum network uh, so the bitcoin can be used directly in ethereum's defi system and wrapped bitcoins allow users to earn interest on the bitcoin they lend out by decentralized lending platforms um and then you have various other things such as prediction markets which is markets for betting on the outcome of future events and a key example of this would be the election um but where it gets slightly more complex is where you have defi concepts such as yield farming liquidity mining money legos which Ashlyn briefly touched on and and those and and just to give you a high level summary yield farming is for knowledge, knowledgeable traders who are willing to take a risk uh where they can scan through various defi tokens in search of opportunities for larger returns liquidity mining is when the defi applications entice users uh to their platform by giving them free tokens and then money legos is putting the the concept uh or putting defi apps like legos where you can in essence build and construct different platforms uh, together um so so those are various different use cases of defi thanks so much for that breakdown and i mean given that it's such a new area of development um there is really quite a lot of activity and and a number of different types of use cases and applications already um you know out there and and i assume a lot of users um already uh, you know making use of these decentralized finance opportunities um given given that we have so many options out there ashlyn what are the risks to these users um you know given that we we've, we've already discussed it's 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 difficult near impossible to actually regulate 
these platforms, whereas in the traditional sense, the financial services is one of our most highly regulated um, industries. What are what are the risks to people now that are that are that are engaging and, and using these services? I think one of the major things to to bear in mind is um, this entire area is very nascent um, and attack prone. In other words, um, most platforms are still being developed. Um, the, the technologists behind them are still investigating how to do this in a safe way. And we haven't really seen all of the, the sort of harms that could occur happen as yet where um, mitigation measures can be developed. So anyone entering this area must bear in mind that it's new, it's developing, it is developing in the public eye in the sense that this is not happening in some R&D center where we can't see what's happening. And um, it's, it's even, I would say, before early adopter stage. This is, this is something that, that still needs some, some work. Um, in addition to that, um, there's the risk of immutable deployment of smart contracts because of the way in which um, uh, smart contracts work on a protocol. It's very difficult unless you build it into the system to reverse um, changes. And, and this creates smart contract vulnerability to glitches or even intentional harm um, by, by bad actors. And that's something very important to take into, into account. The second is that um, the the general view in, uh, is that these are unregulated to some extent. Um, they don't really fall into security regulations, and it's difficult to classify a decentralized organization as a bank. So it's difficult to understand what kind of regulatory recourse there would be to a consumer if, for example, a smart contract malfunctioned and, and created a, a risk for the, the entire ecosystem. Um, there's also the recursive lending problem. So this is is basically where um, the the Lego blocks that that Dean was talking about and we mentioned earlier are used to create complex lending platforms where you can essentially create value on top of value on top of value. Uh, and we only have to go back to 2008 to realize the the problem with that. And that's compounded if you don't have some sort of method of oversight or audit in respect of a, a decentralized platform. Um, in my mind, I also think that standardization for the average consumer is a risk. Um, We've spoken a lot about MakerDAO and, and there's a couple of other pro, uh, platforms, but if you have to compare them as, a, as an expert, it's difficult. So it makes it even more challenging for a consumer to choose between products uh, because of complex systems, complex marketing uh, profiles and the like. Um, and then lastly, uh, there's the big disregard at the moment that we're noticing in respect of know your customer and anti-money laundering procedures. Um, as we mentioned, um, liquidity pools are perfect for money laundering. Um, and, and that creates wider public risk um, that, that still needs to be addressed. So there are a couple of areas um, where essentially DeFi has a, a shopping list of issues to work out before it can really be safe for public consumption. Dean, I mean, we, we've discussed a lot of the, 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 the good stuff that's coming with DeFi, but can you highlight any of the criticisms of DeFi that you've, you've come across? Uh, absolutely. So I think the, the three most relevant ones, which we've briefly touched on tonight, are, you know, the first being the fact that the transactions are irreversible. So which means that if there's an incorrect transaction with the DeFi, DeFi platform uh, or even deployment of a smart contract code containing errors, there's a risk that this cannot be easily corrected. And therefore, the transaction will be irreversible, resulting in someone having some form of financial loss in the chain. The, the second is the fact that there could be coding errors, hacks, and this is pretty common. And you just got to look back in 2020, where one of the platforms known as Yam Finance quickly grew uh, its deposits to $750 million before crashing days after its launch due to a code error. So that still remains quite a key issue. 
And the third is definitely in relation to the know your uh, customer and anti-money laundering rules. Now, while these platforms try to regulate these in some sense, uh, this is only normally done by centralized platforms. And where there's decentralized platforms involved, you normally find that they could be used for some form of anti-money laundering uh, during that process. Do you guys believe the lack of uh, know your customer or you know anti-money laundering compliance will be a showstopper for DeFi? Or do you believe that it will continue regardless um, of, of, of having this, of this uh, type of regulation? In my view, it's it's really too early to tell. Um, I feel like it could be a showstopper if it's left un, undealt with by many of these platforms, which um, for some does seem to be the trend. So I, I do feel that if if they do not take that as a as a serious issue to solve, um, I think that could be um, a regulatory death knell for DeFi as as a widespread platform, uh, a widespread uh, phenomenon. But if it is taken seriously and if these problems are worked on, I think there are numerous benefits um, for DeFi to exist and even coexist with centralized finance or CeFi. Could you elaborate on some of those benefits? Well, um, we spoke a little bit about the centralized um, risk and, and the benefit of having decentralized systems. I mean, for example, um, the people governance has for, for many years, and especially in our financial crisis in 2008, shown uh, uh, the massive human error and human malicious features of, of, financial, of the financial system. So um, the risk of manipulation is something that is, that is obviously possibly dealt with by DeFi. Um, however, in addition to that, there's also accessibility. So um, DeFi has the potential to allow financial services to be accessible by the underbanked and the unbanked, um, those who do not have access to, to current financial ecosystems. Now, that potential is still theoretical. Um, the barriers to financial inclusion go beyond the solutions of a new technical system for financial services. Um, and there are other barriers that obviously exist to financial inclusion. But that's one of the promises that... Um, um, DeFi brings one other interesting promise, and this is one that I find quite quite unique um, to DeFi, is the use of fee tokens. So, for example, MakerDAO um, has the ability to have fee tokens, and these essentially are tokens that are used to reward persons who have committed their their um, cryptocurrency to a um, DeFi platform. Now, those fee tokens function as a form of rental against your cryptocurrency or against whatever commitment you've made within that DeFi platform. And that's a great, a big step forward in respect of the cryptocurrency world entirely because if you think about how Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies work, the value that's associated with them is not intrinsic. It's rather a speculative value. Bitcoin, for example, has a limited pool of available Bitcoin, and that's what creates its scarcity value and then speculation and then that is built on that scarcity However, with fee tokens, what you create is the potential of cash flows associated with cryptocurrencies. Um, and the great thing about cash flows is you can use models like um, discounted, uh, discounted cash flow valuations um, to establish value. Um, and that means a much, much more intrinsic valuation could be done of certain systems or, or certain cryptocurrencies than was previously even thought of. Dean, just following on from something that Ashlyn said, he spoke about financial inclusion as one of the potential benefits um, of DeFi. Could you perhaps apply that to to the continent, to the South African continent, to the African context, context, and and and, and explain to us? You know, it, will there be adoption 
uh, in Africa of DeFi? Uh, absolutely. So I think we got to take it back and look at the fact that a large part of the African adult population remains unbanked. And the continent has about 298 million adults uh, with bank accounts. And this is according to Statista in 2017. But by 2022, the number of banked adults will only rise to 460, 456 million, or roughly 38% of the continent's population. So what this in essence means is that a large portion of the population still remains unbanked. So Africa's need for financial inclusion is rising especially amongst its young population. So banking is vital, and for poverty reduction and sustainable growth, we need to look at ways on how we can improve the traditional banking system, which in essence has failed to bridge the gap. So mobile money and open banking platforms have quickly taken over most banking roles, but they haven't necessarily fulfilled these roles. So the two financial sectors that have leveraged mobile phone technology and data to build efficient domestic payments and financial systems have been looked at. And where we introduce decentralized finance platforms to the continent's youthful population, what we could potentially do is leapfrog the region's uh, financial development and create a new way of helping the unbanked become banked. So in my view, Africa's major banking challenge is its existing uh, inferiority in relation to the banking system. And because the infrastructure as a whole is poor and financial education lacks in many of the countries, banks have been trying to reach the unbanked and I don't necessarily think they've actually developed uh, this. So most of the population who has low income is often the part of the population that remains unbanked. So decentralized finance can actually avail freedom to consumers by eliminating the need for banking institutions altogether and actually providing direct access to participants in Africa to, to ultimately interact in a financial system that is one that may be seen as parallel to the centralized financial system. And the, the, you know, we, we've seen the fact that Facebook and Google have tried to lead the race of rural internet access. And I think as they continue to do that, what we will see is opportunities for DeFi to widen, particularly in the African context. And this may in turn result in, in a lot more of the younger population having access to the financial system. And hopefully in turn, the 38% of the African continent that is currently uh, banked will rise to a much higher portion even, it's in, even if it's in a decentralized format. I think that, that is truly, truly um, motivational. And I, and I do hope everything you said does come to fruition. And I think what you touched on towards the end there is, is, is vitally important. Having DeFi is all well and good, but if we don't have access to the basics such as internet access and access to affordable data, um, you know, that you, you also excluded from, from this new realm uh, of, of, of financial services. So I think what you said with regards to Facebook and Google trying to supply these services, uh, you know, to too many rural parts who didn't have it before, you know, that coupled with uh, the rise of, of DeFi challenging the traditional uh, financial services, which have failed to bridge the gap, um, you know, we could really see something remarkable uh, on the continent, and I'll be um, really excited to to watch to watch that uh, that journey. 
Um, you know, for, for, for our listeners, for people who want to actually learn more, could you also just tell us now in, in what are some of the, the use cases that we're seeing are the most popular? And also perhaps a few platforms that people can go and check out and go and actually see, uh, you know, define action. What what does it look like? What are these platforms doing? And and perhaps try and 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 you know um, engage with with this new way of doing finance. I think firstly we must we must say that whatever we say is in no way a a backing or advice to to look at any mm-hmm. of these specific platforms. But I think one can look at various uh, DeFi tokens that are that are uh, currently floating in the market. And some examples of those include Uniswap, you know, Chainlink, RV, Terra Luna, um, PancakeSwap, and and all these different uh, crypto asset tokens. And, you know, we just have to touch on it briefly to to get educated. But in essence, like as we mentioned earlier, Uniswap is a decentralized protocol and it's known for its role in facilitating automated trading of decentralized finance tokens. Uh, Similarly, we have Chainlink, which is a decentralized network, which aims to connect uh, smart contracts uh, with data from the real world. And there are a whole host of other different platforms. And what I would say to people is what they should do is do their own research online, get a bit more understanding. And a good starting point is to probably go on a site such as coinmarketcap.com and uh, view the DeFi tokens, you can click on the various tokens and, and start to learn a lot more about each respective token. Uh, and in a similar context, you can also have a look online at what DeFi means and, and what it's doing for the market in order to understand it. And, and to touch on, I mean, some popular use cases, you know, there are the platforms like, such as Nexo, BlockFi, Celsius, which are all looking at ways for, for consumers to, to stake their cryptocurrencies, to earn interest. But, you know, consumers must be aware of the risks as these are quite significant. Um, so once again, I think the most important step would be to educate yourself before making any decisions. And some of the projects you can look at are the ones I mentioned. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Ashland, anything to add in terms of where people can go look after listening to this conversation for, for more information or to really go and see some, some practical examples. Thanks, Nushka. I mean, uh, there's, a, there's quite a, a variety of articles out there. Coindesk has, has a couple that are, are really, really good and, and worthwhile reading. Uh, again, it's, it's difficult to choose a particular platform with information. That's, that's great. And, and the, the truth when it comes to DeFi is it's such a, far, a quickly evolving space um, that it, it sometimes means going directly to the source to, to get your information. So, for example, uh, going through the, the particular platforms. Um, just to answer the question on on what kind of things to think about, um, the Lego ability of DeFi is also important to, th- to think about. Uh, with a lot of the services you could build yourself, you will be, for example, if you were going to create your own package of services, um, doing so using different platforms. Um, for example, if you're going to do um, enter the system itself, you might use MakerDAO. Um, if you're going to borrow, you may use Aave or Compound. Uh, these are just examples, but those are borrowing platforms. Um, if you're going to insure, you could use Nexus Mutual. All of these are examples of different platforms that do different things in very, very different ways. Um, 
And therefore, uh, it's important to understand that it's not a uniform space. It's not like there is one way in which this operates. It's, it's, there is really a zoo of options. And um, therefore, I would encourage, just as Dean has done, uh, anyone entering the space to do their homework, to make sure that they, they, they understand the differences and, and, and really do not um, sort of invest in these sort of things without, without getting that, that education, right? Sure. Thanks so much. So we're coming to the end of our conversation. Uh, before we close, um, to our uh, live listeners in the room, if there's anybody who would like to make a comment or ask a question, if you could just indicate that now. Um, and if not, we'll we'll go straight to, to closing comments. Okay, I think we'll head off straight into closing comments. So uh, Dean, we'll start with you. Um, really anything with regards to the future of DeFi, um, you know, where you see this, this headed given the broader cryptocurrency landscape and any other closing comments you'd like uh, to leave for our listeners? I think, I think one thing to say is that, you know, today was quite an interesting day in cryptocurrencies as a whole, where the market cap exceeded $2 trillion and the DeFi market cap is only sitting at about $90 billion at the moment. Uh, and, you know, the total value locked into DeFi uh, as of April is only about $50 billion. So I think we're still at a very, very early stage. I think there is a lot of education that needs to take place. And along the way, there are going to be a lot of mistakes, but a lot of good, innovative technology solutions that will be built. Um, so, yeah, I guess my only comment for, for listeners is to continue educating yourself, do your own research and continue understanding concepts and, and, and what this actually means for the financial system of the future. Thanks so much. And Ashlyn? I, I echo everything that uh, Dean has raised. So it's a little to add to the fact that education is extremely important. Uh, one thing I will say in respect of the DeFi space that um, there is still a gap between the theory and the practical implement, implementation and execution. And that gap needs to be closed significantly before this is, is ready for, for wider rollouts. So um, I think it is important when, when reading about these things to understand the theory, but also understand the practical execution and whether the execution achieves the, the promise. Um, but nonetheless, there are new and novel things that are emerging from BDFI that I'm quite excited about. Um, so it's, it's, it's really exciting to, to continue to read in this space and, and see what these new products and, and new features could be um, that we haven't seen before. Thank you so much for that. We've come to the end of our conversation on demystifying DeFi. Uh, this will be up on our podcast soon, Vault Law Tech. You can find it on your favorite uh, podcast channel. We already have our first podcast up about propelling Africa through NFTs. And follow us on Twitter, Vault Law underscore tech, um, to see what our next events are coming up. We will be having conversations like these um, on a regular basis uh, thank you for for listening goodbye thanks for tuning in to this week's vault podcast as a reminder all views expressed are those of the speakers and are not meant to be of any organization or be treated as legal or financial advice we hope you have enjoyed this program to receive updates of upcoming events, please follow us on our Twitter handle at vaultlaw underscore tech or subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website www.vaultlaw.tech. Until next time. <laughs>